You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. continue to worship our triune God, we come now to our sermon, and our text this evening comes from the book of Titus. Titus, we are in chapter 3, and this is page 999 on the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. These instructions Paul has left for his associate, Titus, who is ministering in Crete, He's giving him him instructions how to continue the ministry that Paul helped establish there. And one of the questions that this book is asking is what are the necessary foundational building blocks for the church here in Crete, for this young church? And today we're seeing one of those necessary foundational building blocks for the church is a process for preserving the peace and the purity of the church. A process for preserving the peace and the purity of the church. So let us read these two verses, verses 10 and 11 of Titus chapter 3. So hear now the inspired and inerrant and infallible word of God, Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. With these two verses, Paul is concluding the body of his letter. We've come to the end of the theological discussion of the practical directions, and we will conclude next week with greetings that he sends, or in two weeks' time. But here we're coming to the end of the body, and it's really acting as an addendum to what we looked at last time in verses 8 and verses 9. Just to recap briefly, verse 8, Paul is calling Christians to trust in God according to the truths that he has revealed to us. These truths that Paul has been expounding and describing for us, these things are trustworthy. These truths are trustworthy. And he's calling Titus to insist on these things. We are to pursue a robust understanding of who God is, who Christ is as our Savior, and the doctrine of salvation. And then out of that flows a life that glorifies God with good works. And church leaders, particularly, must insist on every person being rooted in these doctrines. That was verse 8. And then we come to verse 9, where Paul particularly calls out conflicts and controversies, and division, says this is not good for Christians to be doing. It is unprofitable and worthless. Let me me read verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so we come to verse 10, answering the question, what happens, though, when somebody violates this command in verse 9? What if somebody does these things in the church? So what happens now? We see in these two short verses that Christ protects his people, even in the midst of church division, with proper discipline. Christ protects his people, even in the midst of church division, with proper discipline. 
You'll see the title of the sermon is Division and Discipline, and those are our two points this evening, division and discipline. So let's consider what Paul says about division first. He calls out the person who stirs up division. He addresses the person who stirs up division. As for this person, he's, he's connecting it back to verse 9. All of these, these things that he's described in verse 9 that are not what Christians ought to do. He's now saying if a Christian does them, we now are going to address that. What happens? So this is the sum. This division, this idea of division is the summary of all those ideas that were discussed in verse 9. These people create division in the church. They create subgroups in the church out of error or out of pride. And it's interesting, this word for the person who's caused division is actually what we get the word heretic from. Iretikos is the word in Greek. And it is the word that really indicates someone who makes sects or schisms, somebody who is factious. Now, later on, the word heretic had its more technical meaning of a particular theological error that was egregious. Here it has more of the sense of somebody who believes something or does something to cause division in the church, who is schismatic and creates factions. This could be a church member who's doing that. This could be a deacon or an elder or a pastor in the church who is doing something to cause division who's focusing on the minors and, and the minors creating division in the church or through arrogance or trying to find create a following in the church. Whatever it is, they're creating divisions. And there is great danger for, of causing division in the church. Division causes great harm. Now, I've been in churches where I've seen this happen before. Now, thankfully, I don't believe this kind of division uh, creating is happening in Redeemer, and I praise God for that. But have you ever been in a church where there have been anonymous mailings sent around to the congregation, where they've had anonymous websites saying terrible things about the pastor or elders? There's divisive secret groups, people twisting words of other people in order to paint them in a bad light so that they can curry favor with another group that's in the church. These things are despicable. These things bring great harm to the flock. It undermines the trust that we have in one another as a, the family of God. It throws shrapnel far and wide, harming both those close and far from those causing division. It is a very disorienting experience to be in a church where this kind of division is being stirred. But we must be careful because the, what Paul is calling us to is not uniformity. We're called to unity, but not necessarily uniformity. It is true that conflict in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Differences of opinion is not necessarily a bad thing. It's how you handle that that causes problems, that causes divisions. There are differences in our own church on secondary issues. These secondary issues, such as maybe end times matters, or the length of days of creation, or the Christian's proper relationship to the civil government. Some, there's a number of secondary issues that we might have disagreements on, and that's okay. We have these differences. We're, we're to graciously work through them, and it's okay on a lot of these secondary issues to come down on different positions. 
And in the church, exercising your rights is not divisive. Did you know that members of the congregation can petition the session? If you think an elder is no longer being faithful in his task, you can petition the session to call a congregational meeting so that you can remove that elder. Did you know that? That's not divisive to do that. You're following the order that is laid out before us when there are problems in the church. Did you know if you have a problem with the elders of the church, you can file an official complaint when you think we're doing something wrong or sinful, we're not following our book of church order. It's always a great sermon when you can mention the book of church order. When we're not following, you can file an official complaint and that is not divisive. Now, maybe the way some people go about it is divisive, but doing it is not divisive. If I'm preaching heresy, if I'm teaching things that are contrary to scripture, it is not divisive to go to the presbytery and to ask them to get involved. That is not divisive. But what is, is the spirit that does it. Uh, Trying to stir up division and controversy. The church is meant to be the place of peace and purity for God's people to enjoy and there take refuge in Christ. And this division is fracturing the body of Christ. This division is harming the peace and the purity. If our divisions are, our differences are worked out in proper order, with proper love and trust and respect for one another, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord. That's not what Paul's speaking of here. This kind of division seeks myself, my own, my own aims, my own ends above anything else. Not being submissive to the brethren. And so this kind of division, as it fractures the body of Christ, must be remedied. Threats of division will inevitably come. It will inevitably come to Redeemer at some point in time. And unless it's remedied rightly, it can fester and tear apart a church. So what happens if there is division or threats of division in the church? What ought we to do? So there's division and we come second to discipline. Discipline. Now, I think even the mention of the word might send chills down some people's spines. This may be a scary term, a scary word, but this idea, at least in theory, is not a scary or a mean thing. You read in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord is disciplining all of us. It is a good thing because it is evidence that God loves us. But we must be careful in our minds to not equate discipline with punishment. You know the difference with your children, right? When you discipline children, it's very different from punishing children. Punishing a child is they know what they have coming for them and I'm going to take it out on them. Punishing them is this is what you deserve and so I'm going to give it to you. Discipline is telling a child this is not appropriate. And yes, there are consequences for your actions. And so to help you understand not to do this, there is a consequence. There's discipline, it is chiding, but it is always done gently, not done in anger, not done to punish. Our book of church order, again, a great sermon. Book of church order, chapter 27, helps us define what discipline is. Discipline is the exercise of authority given the church by the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct and guide its members and to promote its purity and welfare. So it's authority that the church has given by Christ to instruct us all, to guide us all, 
promote the purity and the welfare of the church. And so there's really two senses of this idea of discipline. One is general. Everything the church does is discipline. The public worship of God is discipline. It's discipleship, training us in Christ. Every sermon is discipline. We come under conviction of sin and we come to repent and we come to see the glories of Christ. We grow in faith. That's discipline. So we're all under discipline week in and week out. All the ministries of the church, whether Bible studies or Sunday school, this is all discipline, growing in Christ, the discipleship ministries of the church. But there's a more technical meaning of the word discipline. It's a judicial sense. And this is what we're speaking of here in Titus chapter three. And this is what generally you think of when you think of discipline. And so we'll walk through some of the particulars of that here. But the question is, why do we do discipline? Why here at Redeemer Church, it's the session, the elders who have the authority we believe, given by Christ, to exercise this judicial discipline. Why would we do it? Again, our book of church order is helpful. Chapter 27, section 3. It says the first reason we do this is for the glory of God. We discipline for God's glory. Because here, offenses are rebuked. Things that offend God are rebuked and, and said, no, this is not appropriate for a child of God to act this way. That brings God glory. The removal of scandal. If there's public scandal upon the church, what the church must say is, this is not appropriate for Christians. So discipline removes scandal, and it vindicates the honor of Christ, both within and outside of the church. It shows the world that we take Christian living seriously. That something that brings dishonor upon the name of Christ ought to be publicly acknowledged and rebuked. So God's glory is at stake in discipline. But the second thing that the book of church order mentions is the purity of his church. The purity of his church, because if false teaching is infiltrating the church or bad living, evil living is infiltrating the church, it needs to be eradicated. The church is no longer pure as it should be. Now, of course, we all are in sin, but what's being spoken of here is primarily unrepentant sin. When somebody lives an openly unrepentant lifestyle in the church, that must be called to account. So the purity of the church is on the line. And then third, it's for the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. Again, church discipline is not, so this person gets their slap on the wrist that they deserve. Church discipline is to reclaim a sinner, to call somebody back to repentance, to call them back to Christ. It's not punishment, but it's for their spiritual good. So we come to the steps of discipline that are outlined for us here, even very succinctly and shortly, but there's some steps for discipline. And these steps are reflected in our book of church order as well. And some people, even within the PCA I've talked to in the last couple of months, a couple of teaching elders have said the PCA needs an expeditious excommunication method according to Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. They want to throw out our process and our procedure that I'm about to explain because Titus 3, 10 and 11 warrants that. And I think that is very misguided. This is not justification for throwing out our process because first here, the first step is to establish that somebody has sinned. It says the person who stirs up division. Who determines whether somebody stirs up division? 
Who is the one who decides that? Is it one man who decides that? Is it the congregation who decides that? Is it the elders collectively who decides that? Yes, it is the elders. There must be a process for establishing that somebody has sinned. And it is only right and fair that the person who is accused of sinning has the opportunity to respond, to call their own witnesses, to say, no, 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 you misunderstand. Or no, I didn't actually do that. Or no, we're not on the same page here. It's the opportunity for officially to sit down. And we call it a trial in the PCA where there's witnesses, where you can stand and say, no, this did not happen. I did not do these things. But we have to establish the fact that sin occurred. So there's a trial and then there's a judgment that yes, we believe you have sinned. And so after that establishing of the sin, then here Paul says there's warnings. So it says, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, so we've decided you determine that somebody has caused division. What happens? After warning him once and then twice. There's a warning. And the judgment that says you are dividing the church, that is a warning in and of itself. To say you are in sin. What you have done is cause division. That is a warning. That is to call you to repentance. You are no longer honoring Christ in your, with your behavior in Christ's church. That is a warning. And so a failure to repent And to change your behavior will lead to another warning. Again, brother, you are in sin. Repent and turn from it. So these warnings must be issued to call them to repentance, say you are in sin. And if after that second warning, they refuse to listen, they say, "Uh, you're crazy. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Then we have this next statement from Paul, have nothing more to do with him. This is what we call a censure, a censure. And what he's describing here is something akin to what we call excommunication. Excommunicate, ex to to go out of communion with the church, to no longer be able to commune with Christ's people, to no longer be able to commune with Christ at the table, to be removed from communion is a very sober thing. It is a very serious thing when the church says, we have nothing to do with you. Because outside of the church, there's ordinarily no hope of salvation. And when the church says, you are not honoring Christ with your life, you are not repenting of your sin, it's a very serious thing. And each of these warnings must be taken very, very seriously. And I do want to note, this phrase, have nothing more to do with him, is a reference to excommunication, but it is not a reference to shunning. This does not mean you cannot talk to this person ever again. I don't believe that this means you can't let them come to corporate worship any longer. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. But what it does mean is they no longer are considered Christians. They no longer come to the Lord's table. They no longer are counted among the saints. So the censure is applied And verse 11, I'll just briefly note, verse 11 gives some of the reasons for this. This person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. He's refused to heed the warning of the church. He has been warned, you are in sin. Turn from it unto Christ. And if if he refuses to hear that authoritative call to repentance, he is condemning himself. He is stuck in his sin and refuses Repent and turn from it. So he is warped and sinful and self 
condemned. And I'll just add one more note to the process. So we establish the sin. There's a, a judgment. There's a warning. There's a censure. And then finally, it's not noted here by Paul, but by good and necessary consequence, we can show that there is an opportunity to appeal. It's not the end of the day when our elders here at Redeemer Church call somebody to account for their sin. We see in Acts 15, there are some churches that were requiring men to be circumcised in order to be considered Christians. And so what happened was there was an appeal to the broader church. And so the elders from all around met in Jerusalem to determine the matter. And what did they do? They said, no, we don't need to be circumcised. We need to be baptized and look to Christ for salvation. And so they declared, no, we do not require circumcision for salvation. And so the same is true here. If there is a problem where you believe that the session has wrongly determined your guilt, you can appeal. So if we get it wrong, we want others to look at it, just like they did in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. This is a lot. Division and discipline, maybe too much technical information, maybe more than you care to know. But this is Christ's means of protecting us. This is Christ's means of keeping the wolves out of the flock. This is how Christ works among us to make sure we are focused on that thing which Paul says for us to insist upon. Who is Christ? What has he done for his people? Christ is protecting you from me. Christ is protecting the young Christian from the arrogant Christian. Christ is protecting the mature Christian from youthful zeal. This process is good as Christ has established it for us. And so we come back in verse eight. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Where do we land, brothers and sisters? What do we insist upon? What is most important to you? Is it the core of your faith that Christ died for sinners, of which I was the foremost? Do you revel in that? Or do you take secondary, tertiary, quadriary issues and make those primary to the point of dividing the church? May it never be so. May we look to him in whom is all life and life abundance, the one who gives life freely, the one who gives life to all who come to him in faith. Let that be the theme of our song. Let the Savior, Jesus Christ, be the one who is on our lips and in our heart always and every day. Let us not allow ourselves to become sidetracked with these things that cause only division and are not good for building anyone it is Christ who is glorious. Christ who is glorious in all of his abundance. It is only Christ and no false teaching that gives life abundant. So let us insist on these things. Who is our savior? The God-man, Jesus Christ, who died and rose that we might have eternal life. What a glorious joy that is. And it is wonderful that our savior protects us from those who would cause division. In the church. Let us with joy rejoicing look to him in prayer. Father, what a gracious provision you have given us to allow us to keep our eyes on that which bears fruit in our lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we know him better. May we earnestly desire him and all of his fullness. May we dive deeply into the person and the work of Jesus Christ 
knowing who you are as our God, what you have done to create this world and to redeem us, knowing how you have done this great work to redeem us from all sin and misery. Father, help us to insist on these things, to keep our eyes trained on the author and the perfecter of our faith, that he would be at work in us, bringing to completion that work that he has begun, that we would be presented to you a bride, radiant, perfect, washed on that day of his return. Oh, Father, we look forward to that day and pray that you would preserve and protect us until it comes. In the blessed name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.